I'm pleased to announce that um, Sylvia will be heading up what we're calling a music department, as was mentioned in Alan's announcement. There's sign-ups out at the table. And um, she'll be responsible for special music a couple of times a month uh, during the service and also uh, for forming an adult choir. In addition to that, we'll be working on Christmas programs and Easter and things of that nature, so we're excited about that. Anyway, several years ago, while visiting Switzerland, I had heard the following story, which illustrates the importance of defining terms in order to ensure clear understanding in communicating a message. The story is told of a little old English lady who was looking for a room in Switzerland. She asked the local village schoolmaster to help her out. A place that suited her was finally found, and the woman returned to London for her luggage. Upon arrival in London, she remembered she had not noticed a bathroom, or as she called it, a water closet. So she wrote to the schoolmaster. He was puzzled by the initials WC, as she was a proper woman and would not actually spell it out. Never dreaming that she was inquiring about a bathroom, he finally asked the parish priest, who decided WC had to stand for the Wesleyan Chapel. So the schoolmaster thus replied, Dear Madam, The WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of trees. It is capable of holding 350 people at a time and is open each Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. A large number of folks attend during the summer, so it's suggested you go early, although there's plenty of standing room. Some people like to take their lunches and make a day of it, especially on Thursday when there is an organ accompaniment. The acoustics are very good, and everyone can hear the slightest sound. You may be interested to know that my daughter met her husband and was married in our WC. We hope you'll be here in time for our upcoming bazaar. The proceeds will go toward the purchase of plush seats, seats, which the folks agree are a long-felt need, as the present seats all have holes in them. My wife is rather delicate, therefore she cannot attend regularly. It's been six months since the last time that she went. Naturally, it pains her very much not to be able to go more often. I shall close now with the desire to accommodate you in every way possible. I will be happy to save you a seat down front or near the door, whichever you prefer. You know, and as I read through that and was reminded of that, I was reminded of the story that I read in the first ten verses of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7. In this passage, we're introduced to a man whom Jesus identifies as having amazing faith. And I couldn't help but think how confusing that could be if we don't define faith from a biblical perspective. And so the question that we'll deal with today, our questions are, number one, what is faith? And what makes this man's faith so amazing to Jesus? So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7 as we'll look at the first 10 verses of this account. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 1. And when Jesus had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he had heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who has built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. 
For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. In this passage, we clearly see that which is often yet shouldn't be, you know, that which is often and shouldn't be invisible, faith. And the Bible has much to say about faith. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, speaking of faith, the men of old gained God's approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the very word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then as the passage goes on, we learn that that true faith always acts upon God's word. If you read Hebrews 11, God said, go, and they went. God said, do it, and they did it. God said, stop, and they stopped. And true faith is always a response. It's always an action to the clearly revealed will of God and the Word of God. And so when we talk about faith from a biblical concept, we're not talking about wishful thinking, you know, like the people in the world talk about, you know, you've got to have hope, you've got to have faith. But what they're talking about is, you know, faith in, in a very uh, arbitrary manner. You know, wishful thinking, you know, it's better than thinking the alternative, but it has nothing to do with biblical faith, which is always this. You've got to have faith, which is you've got to act upon God's clearly revealed will through His Word. If God says it, do it. If He says don't do it, stop doing it. If He says go, go. And it's as simple as that. And so as we look at this passage, we begin to see something that becomes evident, which all too often in life, unfortunately, is invisible in many folks' lives. The idea of, oh, I have faith. Well, you know what? Even James, inspired by the Spirit of God, would later write, you know what? But faith without works isn't faith at all. He says it's dead. I mean, faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and yet you don't act upon it, you're kidding and deceiving yourself to think you have faith because you don't have faith. Those who truly have faith in God will act upon those things that He reveals in His Word. So often in life we deceive ourselves and we have the standard of God's Word to measure ourselves against, to say, you know what, I may say that I love and yet I withhold when I have the means to be able to support my brother or help one in need, 1 John three sixteen through 18. How can you say the love of God dwells in you if God has given you the resource available to meet the needs of another person? You say you love them, but you do nothing about it. And on and on it goes. Professional mountain climber Royal, Royal Robbins, writing for Sports Illustrated, described the one great essential of his sport. He said, it's not physical strength or having the safest and best equipment or even proper training. He says, the most important essential of, of rock climbing is, or mountain climbing is this, having the ability to see things as they really are. He goes on and describes, he says, if we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we are doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves and our capabilities and weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we will climb safely. For climbing is an exercise in reality. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or even his skill level. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be, 
may have his illusions rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground begins to come up fast upon him. And what he's saying is that, you know, mountain climbers have masterful expressions when it comes to this crucial life principle, and that is this. Wise people resist seeing life as they would like to see it, but they are honest with themselves regarding their capabilities and their weaknesses, and the universal principle applies to faith. Real faith is an exercise in reality. To see things as they really are seen from God's perspective. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the certainty of things which we have not seen. For by it the men of old gained God's approval. And we know by faith that God created the world around us because the word of God says, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Because he spoke the world into existence. And if he spoke the world into existence, we know the power of God's word. We know the certainty of his word. And when he tells us to do something, we, has, we had best do it. In this particular passage, we're going to look at three things. Number one, as you'll see in the outline that we have, we're going to see the reasons for this man's amazing faith in verses 2 through 8, the recognition of his amazing faith by Jesus, and the result of his amazing faith as we'll bring it all to, to uh, fruition or completion. As a reminder, you'll notice that this was when Jesus says in verse, when it's told in verse 1 that he had just completed his discourse, we're talking about the sermon on the level or the plain talk that we've been looking at the last several messages. And what Jesus is doing here is he completed his discourse on, in the hearing of the people. He went to Capernaum and many people had followed him. And uh, he's going to now put into a very practical application that which he's already told them and us. And that is this. In verse 47 of the previous chapter, he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and listen and acts upon them. He's going to now give us a very real picture of what faith that pleases God is all about. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, the torrent burst against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. He's saying if you want to stand firm in your relationship with God, you act upon his word. We live out our faith. We'll be like a man who built on a solid foundation and when all the, the difficulties and turmoils of life come and attack us and come against us, you know what? We'll be like that, that, that tree that's, that's planted deeply in, in the still water that's talked about in Psalm and we, we're careful to meditate on the Word of God day and night and then we'll be prosperous in everything that we do and we'll be successful in God's sight. We've got to have deep roots, folks. We've got to have deep roots and the only way you get deep roots is to be in the Word of God. And and once we're in the Word of God and hear the Word of God and we're convicted by the Spirit of God and He tells us to go, we go, and do, we do, and stop, and we stop. We've got to take action upon that and we'll be like this man who's built on this foundation that's solid, whose foundation is Christ. And as we now move forward, He's going to give them a very real lesson of what faith is all about. He is going to take a contingent of Jews who are following Him and use the faith of a Gentile to teach them what true faith is all about. This is a lesson that they're going to be rudely awakened when they see this. And it's going to be a powerful word picture to them and to us as to what is going on. 
What are the reasons for this man's amazing faith? And we look at verse 2 and we see a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. A certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and he was about to die. In this verse, we're introduced to two things. Number one, the centurion and his very ill servant. You know, first and foremost, history tells us that centurions were highly qualified and regarded men of their day. Just the the title centurion has a word picture that we need to understand as we go through the Bible because each time a centurion is mentioned, he's always mentioned or they are always mentioned in very high regard in God's sight. And the reason for it is that they were men of integrity. They were men of character. They were noble men. And he was a man who was responsible for 100 soldiers, which comes to play as we'll see later in this account. You will notice as we go through this, as I mentioned, that they're men of character. Polybius, the historian, wrote the following regarding the qualifications of centurions. He wrote this, they must, not, they must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and even die at their posts. The centurion must have been a man amongst men or he never would have held the post that was his. In addition to his leadership, we're told of his concern for one of his many slaves who was desperately ill. The word that's used there, as Luke uses it, tells us that this man, his servant, was sick and about to die. He was gravely ill. What's fascinating is it gives us significant insight or look at the heart of this man, the centurion, and his stature in the community because as we look at this, he had a very high regard for his slave, which was unheard of. Because in the eyes of Roman law, a slave was defined as a living tool. He had no rights. A master could ill-treat him and even kill him if he chose. A Roman writer on estate management recommends the farmer to examine his implements every year and to throw out those which are old and broken and to do the same with his slaves. Normally, when a slave was past his work, he would have been thrown out to die. But there was something about the character and the heart of this man who said he was highly concerned or highly regarded You know, as you think about how amazing that is, that this man would be highly regarded by his employer. What a wonderful lesson that is for all of us who are in any position of management or ownership or anything like that, to treat those around us with dignity and respect, to realize that, you know, without them, we could never be successful in anything. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ and that without one another, none of us are anything because it's all about Jesus. We're to lift him up and then the rest of us are to work in cooperation with one another using the gifts that God has given us for the purpose of building up the body that we can serve our Lord and one another and the community and reach him with the gospel of Christ. This man understood that. This man was a man of character. We can learn a lot from this man. And it gets even more interesting from there. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of a slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now, you know, we read through things and we kind of just pass through it, but I want you to stop and think about the significance of this. 
a Gentile, number one, highly despised by the Jews. Number two, a Roman soldier, even more despicable in the mind of the Jews than the Gentiles because they were a picture of oppression. A Gentile soldier goes to Jewish leaders or elders and says, do me a favor, go to Jesus and have him come to heal my servant. Now, to understand that, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. They'd be like, wait a minute, you're nuts. You're despicable, you're a dog, we can't stand you people, and yet on top of that, you're a soldier who oppresses us, we want nothing to do with you, we can't wait till the Messiah comes, so we can just run you out of town and destroy you. And you're asking us to do you a favor? And you know what? And there's none of that argument going on. Why? Because the Jews highly respected this man of character. And they went. And they did it. No questions asked, no hesitancy, no dialogue, no confrontation. They went. And the reason that they went becomes evident as we look through here. Why did they go? The answer is found there. They considered the man to be worthy. And this is troubling because the word worthy is a word that is used of worship. This man is a man who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And that's how they thought of him. They went to Jesus and said, he's worthy for you to grant this to him. And they gave two reasons. And both of them are external. Number one, he loves our nation. Which basically means he's a good guy. He treats us fairly. Compared to other Gentiles, compared to other Roman soldiers, compared to other people, this guy treats us well. So number one, he's good because he treats us well. And number two, he built us a synagogue. Let's not forget that. He coughed up some big jack to build us a synagogue. So, you know, these are two reasons that we think he is worthy. And I want you to notice very clearly here that the arguments are external and the arguments are not biblical. And we'll see that as we go through it. How many times have you heard someone say, you know what, so-and-so is a good person? See, good person treats me nicely, has done nice things for me, given me gifts, whatever it is. Therefore, they're a good person. And the deception of all that is this. The Jews had a, had a misunderstanding because the Jews always looked at the externals. What they said was, God, we are worthy of you because we're doing all the things externally that you ask us to do. And the ongoing conflict with Jesus and the leaders of the Jewish community or the religious leaders was over that one issue. The issue of being externally righteous and internally condemned. To doing all the right things externally so people can see it, but their hearts, Jesus said, were far from God. But Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? But I never knew you. Do not fast as those who fast and they have mourning in their face so that everybody can see they're fasting before God. Do not pray vainly and repetitiously as those who don't even know God, thinking that the multitude of words are what sways God. But have a humble and broken and contrite heart before God and come into a relationship with our Creator through Jesus Christ, His Son, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. 
And they never said anything about the man was humble before God. The man was broken before God. The man, you know, came to God in broken heart. And he was one who loved God. What they went by was all the external things. And we've got to be very careful that we never dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ with a message that's confusing to anyone who thinks that they can buy their way into heaven. We must be very careful not to allow people to think that because they give to a certain cause, that makes them right with God. We must never sell out or compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is to repent from sin, respond to the finished work of Christ, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, and receive Him and Him alone as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins. I am often troubled, and we are as leadership, to make sure that those who give to any ministry, whether it's a property, whether it's church on a regular basis, are people who truly understand that they are not buying favor with God. And we will never take a dime from anyone who we are convinced does not know Jesus Christ and will confuse that gift with somehow earning God's salvation and forgiveness. They had a problem, and the problem was that they saw things externally. Because that's how they analyze their own lives. He's a good man, he loves us, and he built us a synagogue. So Jesus, you must do what he wants so that he keeps doing what we want him to do. Before the 17th century, when people looked at a lake or a pond or a glass of water, they judged it clean if they could see through it. But in 1674, the Dutchman Leeuwenhoek filled a glass vial with water and began curiously looking at it through his newly acquired microscope lens and saw, as he quaintly put it, very many small animalcules. He then examined a drop. I wish you'd have came up with a different word. But uh, he examined a drop of water, jotted down his findings, and wrote this. I now saw very plainly that these were little eels or worms lying all huddled together and wriggling, just as if you saw with a naked eye a whole tub full of very little eels with, and water, with the eels squirming among one another, and the whole water seemed to be alive with these multifarious animalcules. There's a whole, and his point was, you know what? What used to look like clear water, now that we can see it closely, we realize it's not as clean or clear as we thought it was. I am starting to understand a whole invisible world to me that is a world that is real. Every time I go in for a CT scan or a CAT scan or a chest x-ray or, or an MRI or, or, or a PET scan or, you know, blood work, you know, they come back and they have a chart and they'll tell you, you know, this is what we saw, this is what's there. Yeah, I can't see any of that. Never saw any of it. Wouldn't even have known that it was, it, you know, that I had cancer. Would never known that it was in there. If I didn't see a lump, there was no evidence of it whatsoever. But then it revealed to me a world that was invisible to the naked eye, but yet very real. And, and the point that I'm making is this, is that we need to take the microscope of God's word. And we need to take it and shine it within us or look within us. And when we do, we find a whole universe of squirming critters and we begin to realize our own unworthiness. As Jeremiah the prophet said 600 years before this, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it but God? We're to take the word of God and allow God 
to show us and reveal to us the lamp under our feet and the light under our path, what is really going on in our hearts, what we need to confess before God, where we need to repent before God, where we need to be obedient before God because that's faith and acting upon it and the light of God's word, the microscope of his word. And unfortunately, many of us look at ourselves through the wrong end of a telescope, yet alone the microscope of God's word. And the centurion understand this, uh, understood this about himself and noticed the confidence that he has, not in himself, but in Jesus. In verse 6 it says, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, go and they go, and come and they come, and do this and they do that. His confidence was not in his own works, not in his own efforts, not in his own self-proclaimed goodness, or even the proclaimed goodness of others that they saw in him. His confidence was in the authority of Jesus Christ and him alone to forgive sins. Jesus, always on the alert for one whose heart is turned toward him, started on his way. And I like this. Jesus started to go there. He didn't get in a big conversation. He didn't get a doctoral dissertation about, listen, you know what? Nobody's worthy. This man's not worthy. None are worthy. No, not one. All have fallen short, fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. He started to go with them. And I like what I see here, and it reveals more of the centurion's heart, because here's what happened. As Jesus was on his way... He must have heard that Jesus was coming. And he may also have heard how they presented the story to him so that Jesus would come. And Jesus sent a new delegation of his friends out to Jesus and said, You know what? Tell him, let's get something straight. I am not worthy. Only God is worthy. Only he is the one to be worshipped. Only he is the one to be praised. Only he is the one that has given all glory and honor and wealth and all that is, that, that is rightfully his. You go tell Jesus, I'm not worthy. And if I thought I was worthy, I would have just came myself. I'm not worthy. Many of you have been praying for me, and I thank you for that. But I would ask that as we read something like this, that if we need to, we change our prayers Because for any of you who have maybe wrongfully prayed, you know what, Lord, Chuck's a good guy. He's worthy of you healing him. Please heal him. Don't do that. Because I'm not. I am not worthy. If he is willing, praise God. And if he's not willing, praise God. It doesn't matter. We can't lose. Even if he slays me, I'll still trust in him. But none of us are worthy. Only he is worthy. Continue to pray. But pray that God's will would be done. Pray that lessons will be learned. Pray that opportunities will not be missed. Pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ will go out to the world through this circumstance in my life as well as the circumstances of your life. But pray for those opportunities for none of us are worthy of anything. He deserves all the praise and glory. See, this man understood that. And what's amazing about his faith, it begins with confidence in God's character, his holiness, as opposed to his own self-confidence. This man obviously saw himself as he really was. 
He had a wholesome consciousness of his own sin. And once we see ourselves as we are and take into account not only our faulty actions, but our corrupt tendencies, our foul thoughts, our pampered sensualities, our baseness, our meanness, much of what has never come to the surface, we will then avoid ever saying or ever imagining that I am worthy. If others saw some of the things that you and I think, we would see very quickly that none of us are worthy. The great problem for most non-Christians and, not, and also many Christians is that they're strangers to themselves. They've bought into the lie. They look at the errors of others through a microscope and see all the wriggling animalcules and all the stuff that goes on. And they look at their own sins through the wrong end of a telescope. They compare themselves to someone else. And as a result, they say, you know what? Well, based on what I see in your life, therefore I am worthy and I'll earn my way to heaven. I'll be in heaven. You won't be in heaven because of the obvious difference between you and me. And unfortunately, that is a lie that has been uh, perpetuated on this culture probably for the last 20 or 30 years. It started with books that came out like, I'm okay, you're okay, and the health and wealth and the prosperity doctrines that are preached. All of us are good people. None of us are that. Look, we're all corrupt to the core. And the core is the apple that Adam ate. We are corrupt to the apple core that he ate and through his sin, sin entered in the world and you and I are born into the world, alienated and strangers from God, corrupt at the very foundation of our life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have turned from God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And until we understand that, we will never be saved because you have to repent and turn from sin in order to recognize and understand the need to go to Jesus at the cross for forgiveness. If you think you're okay, you will die in your sins and you will spend an eternity separated from God in hell because you don't see what drastic straits that you are in outside of Him, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace. You and I would die and go to hell for eternity. But praise God, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ and Him alone. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than the authority of Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. And until you see your own depravity, you can never be saved. That's the gospel. That's the message. Every gospel message must start with repentance. I get so troubled when I hear people say, you know what, well, before so-and-so died, they, they, they invited Jesus into their life. What does that mean? Were they broken of sin? Did they recognize their desperate straits? Did they understand there was no other way to heaven but through Jesus, His death on the cross and His resurrection? Were they broken? Were they contrite? Had they repented of their sin? Did they ask for forgiveness? We don't just ask Jesus into our life. What does that mean? We need to define the terms. Faith's not wishful thinking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is, is, is understanding God's word and the power of his word and acting upon that which we don't see because of the clarity of God's word and his trustworthiness and the dependence upon it. We need to be very careful as we share with others that we need to make sure that the gospel message begins with brokenness and repentance and turning from sin and turning to God. 
and trusting in Christ and Him alone and His resurrection and receiving Him as our Savior from sin and from death and from an eternal darkness separated from Him. Have, were you broken for your sins? Did you understand your need for repentance and turning from sin and turning to God as the only salvation? Did you trust in Christ, His death and His resurrection, and have you invited Him in your life as your Savior, knowing there's nowhere else to turn and no one else to go to? See, this man understood. He goes, I'm not even worthy that you would come to my house. I'm not worthy of any of that. I wasn't even worthy to come to you and talk to you in person. So I sent others to do that. And when they presented to me as a worthy candidate for you to come and heal my servant, I want to set the record straight. Don't believe what anybody says about me because you already know. You know that's not true. I might be better than some, maybe even better than most, but that's not the standard by which God measures humanity. He measures it according to His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness, and none of us measure up against that. Give yourself a test. Do such words offend you? Do such words make you angry? Do such words bring up within you or conjure up the idea, who does that guy, who do you think you are telling me how miserable I am? If that's so, then you know what? You're not living in the reality of how God sees us. You're blind to your own sinfulness and you're excluded from the life of Christ. You have not repented of sin. You have not trusted in Jesus. You have not received Him as Savior. You're lost in your sins and if you die, you're going to hell. Because only a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, will not despise. We must see ourselves as God sees us through the microscope of His Word. We must remember that while Christianity that ignores sin becomes sick, Christianity that sees very little but sin is a type of slavery. I'm not encouraging us to walk around all the time with our heads down saying, oh, how despicable I am. Or as, Dad, or as Donald Duck used to say, oh, how despicable I am, whatever, however that goes. It was a, you know, and I remember that as a kid. It was like, he's just like, oh, so despicable. You know? And it's like, you know, yes, we are despicable. Outside of the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Christ, every one of us are despicable. But praise God for His mercy. Praise God for His grace. And you know, because Christ lives within you and I who have repented of sin and received Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that you and I may become the next Paul or the next Peter or one of the many godly people that are found throughout Scripture. That because of Christ who lives within us, we now have a capability because of the image of God that is stamped upon us to live our lives in a higher plane or plateau than ever we could when we were dead to God and alive to sin. So we don't walk around feeling sorry for ourselves or miserable about how miserable we really are. But you know what? Biblically informed, spirit-filled Christians should, should always you know, be looking at themselves as God sees us. C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend, told how the writings of the great Scottish preacher Alexander White had brought him face to face with characteristics of Puritanism he had almost forgotten. Lewis wrote for him, speaking of White, the one essential symptom of the regenerate life, or a person who has truly come to faith in Christ, 
is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural and unalterable corruption. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. And I like that. Because you know what that'll do? That'll prohibit us and prevent us from becoming self-righteous as we look at the lives of those who do not know Christ. Because there, by the grace of God, went you and I. We were right there where they are until God in His mercy called us from darkness to light. Period. And so we will never be self-righteous ever again if we have a fresh and new understanding of how lost we truly are. But praise God. See, the centurion's faith became visible, as you see in verse 8. He understood and had a strong confidence in the authority of Jesus. He knew that Jesus could heal up close or from a distance. He didn't have to see it for himself like doubting Thomas would later. I only believe it when I see it. He knew that Jesus could speak the word from wherever he was and his servant would be healed. Why? Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He believed that if Jesus spoke the word, he didn't have to be there to see Jesus speak the word, and he didn't have to be with his servant to see the word being acted upon his servant. He believed that if it was God's will to heal, he could do so, just as he spoke the world into, the, into existence. None of us were there to see it. And if anybody ever questions God, read Job chapters 38 through 42, when Job thought a little bit highly of himself than he should, and God just put him back in his place. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Huh? You think you know everything. Some of us are like that. It's like, well, God, you know, if, if, if it was my call, here's how I'd do it. Well, thank God you're not God. Or we'd all be in trouble. Thank God only he's God. And praise God that he is. So the centurion understood. He knew that it's like, hey, you know what? His faith rested on Jesus and Jesus alone. And he knew his own unworthiness, and he knew who Christ was. He trusted in Jesus and him alone for his own salvation and the salvation of his household. And I want you to notice in verse 9, the recognition of his amazing faith by Jesus. He said, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. The NIV in the Amplified tells us that Jesus was amazed. That's amazing faith. He marveled in the New, New American Standard and the King James. Both words help us to understand how unique this encounter was because this word is only translated this way two times in all of the Bible. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, it's translated that, you know what? Jesus was amazed and he marveled at the unbelief of the Jews. And here Jesus was amazed and he marveled at the faith of a Gentile. And what an indictment that was. Why was Jesus so amazed by this man's faith? Number one, consider his background. I just mentioned the guy was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't grow up in the covenant. He didn't have the scriptures in his home. He wasn't taught right from wrong according to God's word. He was, quote, what we would call an unchurched person. And yet he had faith in Jesus and all the church people of his day didn't believe him. He had no advantages because the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The whole purpose of God's laws was to help the Jews see who Messiah was when Jesus came and all the things that he did were all laid out for him in the Old Testament. It was a roadmap, a tutor that led him to Jesus, trusting in him. They didn't trust in Jesus and here was a guy that had no background or understanding and it's exciting because it's hope for every unchurched person 
that salvation is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The salvation of God, whosoever will come to him shall not be cast aside. Whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. You don't have to grow up in a church background. You don't have to have that type of heritage. If you do, praise God for that. And all of us who know Christ, that's the kind of heritage we should leave behind us. But you know what? God doesn't exclude anybody. For God so loved the world. The entire world. And I love that. It's hope for us all. And he recognized the authority. That's why he said, I'm a man under authority. I understand what it means to say, go and people go. Come and people come. Do and people do. And so, you know what? You, Jesus, are the ultimate authority, so I understand that you've come in authority. You, 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 by, your, by your words, demons are cast out of people. By your words, sick people are healed. By your words, we'll find out, dead people will raise. You have the ultimate authority, so if you say he's healed, he's healed. I understand that. Jesus marveled at that. He was amazed at that. Consider also the man's occupation. He was a soldier, an instrument of the oppressive pagan establishment. As an officer, he wielded considerable power. And I'm telling you right now, soldiers and those in a powerful position aren't used to anybody telling them what to do. And he was amazed because this man in authority and power bent his heart and his knee before Jesus. I understand authority. And I understand that you're greater than me. And so I submit to you. You know what? Not many in authority, not many in power in our world bend their knee to the authority of God. Jesus was amazed by that. He was amazed because of the man's wealth. You know, riches in this lifetime are not a spiritual advantage because they foster a world attachment and they foster a misunderstanding that we have no need for God. I will count on my money. I will count on my bank account. I will count on my possessions. I don't need you. And the only time that people begin to understand that is when they recognize all the money and the wealth and everything you have will not keep you from dying. You are terminal. You're going to die. And all the money you have, all the stuff that you have, everything you've collected, everything you've put your heart in and your trust in, guess what? It is meaningless to you now. It is hopeless to you now. Where are you going to turn now? Jesus would later say, you know, it's easier for a camel to call through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. But what he said was, but you know what? With God, all things are possible. Here was a rich man who came to know Jesus as his Savior. And he was amazed. He was amazed by that. And lastly, Jesus was amazed at the man's certainty. He lived out the biblical definition of faith when he said, but if you say it, it'll happen. The assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. And by faith, the men of old gained God's approval. And men and women, by faith, we gain his approval today. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. If you say the word, he shall be healed. I don't have to hear you say it. And I don't have to see it and act it on the other end. But I know that it's true. Because you cannot lie. In our God, there is no darkness at all. And if he says it, it'll come to pass just as he said, because he is not like men who can lie and mislead people and change their mind. His word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what was the result of his amazing faith? The simplicity of he found a slave in good health. And I like that. And the reason I like it is this is that good health 
according to a doctor's examination, good health means completeness. It means wholeness. It, re- it, re- it means a return to God's original design. It's a beautiful picture of what God does in the life of a repentant sinner. We are whole, complete, healthy before God. We're no longer at enmity with God. And in closing, I'm going to ask you a couple questions and share a couple thoughts. Faith is an exercise in reality. He who sees clearly and not merely as he would like to see is on safe ground. And I will ask you some questions. Do you see yourself as deserving of Christ's grace as the elders saw the centurion? Do you inwardly think that because you're a lover of the church or even more a giver of your money or time that you are somehow worthy of God's care? Have you secretly internalized others' good opinions of yourself so that despite the persistent teaching of God's word that salvation comes through faith and is a gift of God, you imagine that you will somehow make it into the kingdom by your own personal virtue or efforts? Do you see Christians who glibly talk about their salvation but don't measure up in their walk and then reason that because your life is better than theirs, you certainly will make it to heaven? If so, you are not seeing reality. You must face the truth. Apart from the grace of God, your heart, my heart, is desperately wicked and evil. Self is at the center of the universe of one who thinks that somehow they are good in God's sight. None of us are. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your only hope is the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you see Jesus for who he is? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? He is, after all, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, thrones and powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have his rightful supremacy. Do you see him as your savior? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Is Jesus your only hope? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will be with the Lord forever. See, biblical faith is an exercise in reality. Seeing things as God sees them. Do you see yourself as you are? Do you see Christ as he is? If so, you see through the eyes of faith. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for your word and your spirit. That microscope that helps us to see us as we truly are in your sight desperate and in need of forgiveness. God, help each of us to see our own sinfulness and how desperate we are in need for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that even while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die on our behalf. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
God, I pray that each person that hears these words, that they will humble themselves in the brokenness of their heart and that they would turn from sin and turn to you, O God. That they would respond to the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection for it's by grace we're saved through faith. And that believing in your word, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, our forgiveness and the certainty of that which we don't see that you actually have forgiven us. God, we see the evidence in our life for those who are born again. We have the Spirit of God who lives within us, who continues to convict us of sin and judgment, of righteousness, continues to lead us into all truth, so that we, when you say go, we go, and when you say stop, we stop, and when you say do, we do. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And at this time, we want to thank you and remember what Jesus has accomplished by his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection in our behalf. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.